Well, today we have uh, for you um, for you deal hunters out there a BOGO passage. Uh, we got a two for one. Uh, in the context of a meal, Jesus tells a story about a meal. He tells a parable. He actually tells a couple yeah, parables, meal parables. And so we've we've jumped a few chapters ahead in Luke here, where we come to Luke chapter 14. So we were in 11 last week. But today's meal passage, it falls in a section that runs all the way from chapters 13 to 17. So this extended section, that, and in this section, Jesus is teaching on the coming kingdom. Um, he, in particular, he's talking about who is and who is not part of it. And throughout this section, the, the entering the kingdom, it's symbolized by taking part in a feast or in a banquet. That imagery is, is frequent in this section. And so those who will enjoy this feast, this coming feast, are those who receive the Messiah and his message. And, and what becomes clear, particularly in chapters 13 and 14, is that the Jewish nation as a whole, represented by her leaders, the ones that were originally offered the kingdom, they've rejected it. And yet the, the coming feast, it's not canceled. It's, it's not that because just because they decided to be no-shows. No, the party is still on. It will be full. But the larger portion are going to be these Jewish outcasts and Gentiles are now brought in as well to join in the feast. And so the, the theme is very clear in chapter 13. and It carries over into chapter 14. And I think you can see that as we pick it up in, in chapter 14, verse 1. So follow along as I read. One Sabbath when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to, a man, to the man who had invited him, to the host, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. May the Lord write his eternal truth on our hearts today, brothers and sisters. Well, my hope as we walk through this passage, extended passage today, one that could honestly be about three sermons, 
um, but it's not going to be, uh, and hopefully not three sermons in one either. Um, but my hope is not just that we'll find the story interesting. It is a very interesting story. My hope is that we'll behold the heart of our Lord together. And, 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 and seeing that, seeing him, we will be filled with gratitude as we've been singing, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I brought in? And, and not just filled with gratitude, but moved with compassion that we might be begging others to join in the feast. That's where we're going to end up this morning at the conclusion. But to get there, we need to walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly of this passage. And so now that I've planted some pictures in your mind of an old film, uh, I have no, no other connections to that movie, um, but you have the iconic standoff scene in your mind, some of you. But we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, those are the words that kind of rose to the top. And we're going to take those words in reverse order this morning. So we'll see the ugliness of the scene, of the setting. We'll see that Jesus exposed this bad that's in the, quote, good people. And we'll see the goodness of his grace towards the bad people. And so let's jump right in. That might be my shortest, shortest sermon introduction ever. So I, I think you should thank me later. All right. Not shortest sermon, probably. The ugly. Ugly is an appropriate word to describe the setting here. And it, it may not seem ugly or bad at first if you just start reading verse 1, if you, particularly if you're not familiar with the wider context of what we've been looking at in Jesus' interaction with this group. But you see verse 1, One Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now you just stop there, it could sound like there's this great opportunity, opportunity Jesus has to eat a nice meal with, with these religious leaders in the nation. Um, you know, maybe, maybe this is a peacemaking meal. Maybe they're, they're ready to bury the hatchet. Uh, maybe, maybe this is, they're, they're finally interested in what he has to say, or, or maybe they've been impressed with what he's doing and, and, and how he's working. And so they, they want to throw this meal to honor him, or maybe it's just that they're curious. Well, those would all sound great, but that's just not the case. And that's very clear. The meal's a setup. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to bait him in, snare him. They're, they're working to orchestrate this sort of gotcha moment, and, and to catch him. And we know that from what we saw last week, remember in chapter 11, how the chapter ended, the passage ended. And they're, they're, from, from that moment on, the text says that they're actively plotting and they're working to, quote, press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Luke eleven fifty four. You, you know what it's like, probably, to be invited into a hostile situation. You've ever been in, in part of a meal or a, a business meeting or a family gathering, and, and it feels like people are watching you, just hoping you'll mess up. And so they can just say, you know, I told you so. That's who he is. Yeah, I, some of you, I know, became Christians well into adulthood. And, and, and there are a few believers in your family, and some of you have shared the, the challenges of going to those family gatherings and traveling back, and you just feel like every word, every move, everything is scrutinized as, as they're watching you. This is, this is what we have here. And so this chief instigator behind the meal, the host, is, you see verse 1, a ruler of the Pharisees. He's a top dog in their leadership structure. And so he's gathered also other high-ranking Pharisees together, the, the who's who of the religious elite. And, and they've come to this house for this meal with Jesus. Why are they there? Well, he says, they came, they, he's brought them together and he's brought Jesus in so that they can watch him carefully, it says in verse 1. They're, they're watching his every move. They're scrutinizing every word he speaks. They're analyzing every little nonverbal cue that he gives. And they're, they're, trying, they're trying to get some dirt on him trying to bring him down. And so and to add to the ugliness of this scene, it's all going this is all going down on the Sabbath, and that's not coincidence. This is all part of their premeditated plan here. If there's one thing the Pharisees have been really worked up over as they've observed Jesus, it's it's what he's willing to do on the Sabbath. And and, he, and and it's not that Jesus ever broke God's Sabbath law, but he has trampled all over their little rabbinic rules. And, and they hate him for it. In particular, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. And this was really a burr in the saddle of these Pharisees. And so this is, so this, this, and it just so happens that on the Sabbath, with all of the who's who of the Pharisees gathered together, there just happens to be this very sick man who comes into the room as people are, seem to be milling around before the meal. 
And this man is suffering from what the text says is dropsy. Um, dropsy is what we today call edema. Uh, this, is, this has to do with the excessive buildup of fluids in, in, throughout the body. And so his face, his stomach, his chest probably, his extremities for sure, uh, would, would, have, would be significantly swollen by just the, his body's retention of these, of these fluids. And so dropsy was, was generally not like a condition in its, of itself. It was a symptom of, of, of a deeper underlying condition, usually some kind of heart condition or uh, pulmonary issue or something like that. So his breathing would have been labored. He, w- he, was, he was no doubt in a whole lot of pain and discomfort. And, and it was very obvious that he had problems. So today there are, there are medications given to give some relief from, from that buildup of fluids. And, and so they can begin to deal with the underlying issue. But in that day, it, he's probably terminally ill. He's, he's probably going to die um, from this. And so given the ugliness of, scene, of the scene, though, we, we have to wonder if, he, if, he, if he's a plant. Was he, was he being used? It seems to be, as the way, the way Luke records it, it's at least implied. Again, the whole gathering is there on the Sabbath to watch Jesus. And then Luke says, behold, all of a sudden, there, there just was a man, a sick man, right in front of Jesus, standing right in front of him. It's not like Luke 7 where where Luke tells us that this, you know, this sinful woman crashes the party of the Pharisees and hears Jesus there and goes and finds him. That's not the way this is recorded. It's just like, boom, he's there. And so the Pharisees are probably using this man and his misery to, to, as part of their trap to get Jesus. And so they know, they know Jesus won't be able to resist healing him. They, they, not even on the Sabbath. And so they're probably, they probably think they've got him. It's all very, very ugly. It's, it's just... Human depravity cloaked in religion. And, but Jesus sees right through it all. He's not going to be trapped by them. He, in fact, he turns, he turns around and traps them with a single sentence. Look at verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's responding to them and they haven't said anything. But he, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what they're doing. So he asks this question but verse 14, verse 4. But they remain silent. Proud, maybe a little bit scared, sulking silence. And in the absence of an answer, though, Jesus goes ahead and heals the man anyway and sends him on his way. Now, Dr. Luke here, you'd think he might spend more time, but he doesn't describe the, the miracle and how this happened, but it must have been spectacular. I mean, this guy was, was, was uh, swollen, immense. He, He's suddenly restored to his normal size and all that fluid is gone from his body. His, he has a waistline again. He can you know, see his ankles and joints again and he can, he can move them. I mean, this was incredible. Just in an instant. And the pain's gone. The underlying cause is probably resolved. It's incredible. But do the Pharisees, they break out in some celebratory song? No, they're fuming. They're fuming. The scene... And so that's where we begin, the scene, the setting, the, the setup. It's all very, it's very ugly. But, but Christ is at work. Christ is, is working to put this, their, their dead religion on this collision course with sovereign grace. That's what's, that's what's happening here. So the, the ugly. Second, the bad. The bad. There's a, 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 the, the problem with the Pharisees, the, the bad it's, it's peeled back layer by layer during this meal. So there's a progression that we can see as we walk through this text. So at first, it just it starts as this dispute about Sabbath law. Uh, again, it's not really interaction, but that's what Jesus is responding to. By the end, though, Jesus is saying, these people are eternally damned if they stay the course. They're going to completely miss out on God's messianic banquet. That's a, that's a pretty rapid progression. So we want to see that. There's this progression that we can see in his words. And so the first, kind of the outside layer of the problem, that external bad we can see here. And so after healing the sick man, Jesus said to them, verse 5, which of you having a son or ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And again, they have nothing to say. They, they could not reply to these things, verse 6. Now, of course, if, if tragedy struck one of their animals, let alone their son, their child, on, on the Sabbath, they would certainly save them. They wouldn't just, you know, tell their kid that's stuck in a well or something like that. Well, uh, you know, make yourself comfortable. It's going to be a long night, but 
I can't work, and so I'll get you out tomorrow. Here's, you know, throw here some bread, you know. Uh, they, no, of course not. They would, they would do everything they could to, to rescue them out of that, that, that perilous situation. So, so the outside layer, and this is what I just mean by this external bed, the kind of the outside layer that we see, the problem, the bad, it's just it's their callous indifference to, the, to this man's suffering, this man that came in, that they used, and it's their inconsistent application of their rules. There's just kind of this external bad that we see here. They're acting like hypocrites. They show no mercy to the sick man. They have nothing to offer him. Uh, they only use him. And so it's bad. Even on the surface externally, it's bad, but it gets worse. And Jesus, Jesus is peeling them back. He's dissecting them. He's, he's going deeper and deeper, revealing what's going on inside of them. It's not just that external behavior level. It's deeper, the problem. So the internal bad, second. So, so now it's time to actually sit down and eat the meal. The host lets everyone know, and people start moving towards, toward the table. And Jesus is, it just seems like he's just kind of standing back and watching all this unfold, maybe with a little bit of a wry grin on his face. And, and, and he observes the probably somewhat polite but very obvious jostling and, and the jockeying for positions around the table and, and, and the best seats, and so they're scrambling to get the seats nearest the host, the places of, of greater honor. The, it, it, will, it will be a better meal for them, they know. Even the food will taste better if they can get in prime seats and, and, and if they can, they can be seen by others in those seats as superior, as better than the rest. So Jesus is just observing all this, watching what's happening in front of him, and without waiting, he, he speaks. He takes the mic again and he tells a parable about seat selections and what they reveal about us. We, we are where we sit, we could say. Uh, and so he, he gives them some, some good common sense Hebrew wisdom, it seems. And so he actually, you could, we don't look there, but Proverbs 25, 6 and 7, that seems to be what he's drawing on here, a, a, a proverb that these, these Pharisees probably were familiar with and, and they would affirm that, that truth. But here's the image of the parable. And so... You see this in uh, um, verse verse seven here, and 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 so when he notices the seats, and so the honor hungry guest here arrives at at this this wedding feast. We have a few of those coming up in the next couple of weeks. One of them I'm very familiar with. Uh, both of them I am actually, but uh, we have we have these. But they, this guest arrives and don't try this, please. Uh, but he arrives at the wedding feast, checks out the seating arrangement and then chooses the most prominent seat available to him. That's, that's kind of the image of this parable. He's so happy with his spot. He, he's near the host and the other honored guests. He's, he's at the part of the table where everybody's eyes are, are looking, and he, and, he, and he thinks to himself, he imagines people looking at him and thinking wonderful qualities that, that must exist in this person for him to be sitting there, and maybe a little bit envious of him sitting in that honored seat. And then he feels this presence above him, behind him, and then a tap on his shoulder, and it's the host. And the host tells him, get up, move way down there to the lowest seat at the table. Someone more important than you has arrived, and you've got to give him your seat. And this guest who felt so good about himself and was so enjoying this meal and all of the attention, now he's all red and sweaty and his chest tightens and he makes that walk of shame as all those eyes are on him. And, and he walks across the room, taking that lowest seat, feeling so small. And then verse 10, but when, but when you're invited, so that's how not to sit, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. That's good practical advice, isn't it? Yeah, that would come in handy at a party. But if, if we're only reading this at the level of kind of social graces, we're really missing the point. He's, he's not giving this parable to, to help us avoid this kind of social embarrassment. And he's certainly not promoting some kind of phony staged humility where we take the lowest seat in hopes that we will get honored and be made much of in, in a celebration. No, Jesus hates pride that pretends to be humility. That's not what's happening here. No, Jesus is 
getting at a much deeper internal matter of the heart here. He is, and here's the punchline that makes it clear. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so as, as Jesus is pulling back, the peeling back the problem with these religious leaders, we see this internal problem, this internal bad. We see the pride. We see the honor seeking. We see this drive for self-exaltation. We see the craving for recognition. We see this deep-seated belief that they're actually superior to others. And, and those who think and live like that, Jesus says, they're going to be brought low. In contrast to those who are low and who know it, that those who realize they don't deserve honor, they'll be honored. So Jesus is he's using, this is a, we don't, again, this, if we were, if this was a sermon series, we could go and look at the many places that these words are, are used almost verbatim in the New Testament. This is a, 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 an often repeated kingdom principle in the New Testament. And, and so Jesus is using this so to expose the hearts of these seat-seeking, scrambling Pharisees. We'll come back to it. But just, so that's, he's, he's showing that it's deeper than just a debate about Sabbath law. There's something going on in the heart. And, and we see it come out in verse 12 and following here. So he insults the guests about their seating choices and how they scramble for seats. Now he turns to the host and insults him too and exposes his kind of hidden motives, his internal bad. So verse 12, he also said to the man who invited him, the host, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, again, his point, it's not that our normal kind of Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners and maybe our Fourth of July celebrations uh, are, are evil or something like that. If we have friends and family and neighbors over like that, that we're doing something you know, very wrong and having a comfortable meal with people that we know and love like that. That's not, that's not the point. Jesus accepted these kinds of invitation. He had those kinds of meals and was refreshed by them often. You know, what Jesus is doing here is he's laying bare this man's heart. He, he, this man who's using his table and using the guest list and those people that he puts around the table as a selfish means to kind of rise through the ranks. They can get, he can get something from them. That's, that's his point. The host is shutting out the poor, shutting out the outcast because he doesn't think they have anything to offer him, and, and he's using his wealthy friends and family for personal gain. That's the point. So there's this, there's this internal bad that kind of comes out in this progression. But Jesus, the, the problem Jesus is uncovering here is even more significant. It goes beyond the external behavior stuff. It goes beyond even the internal. It's, it's eternal. There's eternal bad there's an eternal problem here and so basically jesus has insulted everybody at the party by now uh and so there's this tension we can feel even as we read the text i think you could pick that up maybe an awkward silence that everybody's just kind of looking at their food and you know nervously sipping their wine and just what is going on here and so you see verse 15 uh it, to me it's like this guy it seems he's just trying to break the tension this is kind of valiant but failed effort to do that anyway and so th this is maybe kind of how like we were in a we're in a you know meeting that gets kind of uncomfortably charged and tense or something like that, and we just said, "Wow, how about that Hawks game last night?" Uh, you know, just trying to kind of diffuse and, and and get everybody relaxed a little bit, or like, "I oh, hear we have rain coming in this week," something like that. That's 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 almost how this seems. Verse fifteen is the only words that are spoken by anybody other than Jesus in the section. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's very true, very pious language. He, he, his guy makes an exclamation and just probably gets some affirming amens. Maybe timid, but, some, you know, nods of approval. Maybe, maybe people do begin to relax a little and, 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 and thinking the tension is easing up. And, but, but then Jesus, he, he sees right through it. And he just turns the heat up even more. You want tension, I'll give you tension. Uh, because in essence, the man's exclamation meant, and judging by what Jesus tells us in the parable, it meant something like, blessed are people like us. Blessed, blessed are the likes of us who will feast in the kingdom of God. Now pass the mashed potatoes, please, and let's keep going and eat. But Jesus, 
he won't let their misguided self-confidence go unchecked. Because beyond their external problems, beyond the internal condition of their heart, is this eternal problem. And Jesus exposes it with this very powerful parable. See in verse 16, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he, he sent his servant and, to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Now, this is just juicy already. This is good. And we're going to get to the good in just a moment, but we're on the bad. We're still in the descent here. Um, but, but there's something we need to understand. There's a little cultural matter that I think that helps us understand the parable here. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, they, there was a, a, a double invitation was standard. And so they'd send out servants to invite guests to a banquet, to a feast like this. And then they would count those who accepted the invitations and and prepare, you know, the party based on the number of folks who RSVP'd that they're coming, kind of like a save the date thing, but, but they would respond and say, yeah, we're coming. And so you'd determine how many, you know, what animals you'd butcher, how much wine to keep in stock, all that kind of stuff based upon the responses that you received. And then a second invitation was sent out. Servants would go out again, and, and they would be, the second invitation was just saying, hey, everything's ready, come on. There was no text message chain or anything like that. So send people out party's ready come on that's the custom behind this parable so as the servant goes out to those who've already rsvp that they're coming he, he, he goes out to tell them that the party's ready everything's prepared these confirmed guests though they make these lame excuses and refuse to come verse 18 but they all alike began to make excuses in, in the way luke records it it's it's it seems to indicate that they've conspired together um, uh, to avoid this banquet. And they first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now someone, I read this this week and I don't remember who said it, but someone said, um, poor excuses are, are half-baked reasons cooked with lies. And that's what these are. These are not reasonable. I know they might at first sound to us, but, and that's his point with the story. Nobody, not even those Pharisees around the table, would, would hear Jesus telling the story and say, yeah, those are justifiable reasons to avoid uh, an occasion like that. No, nobody. To bail on a lavish feast that you've already accepted the invite to would be utterly shameful in that culture. You would, you would, you would, it would, it would be unheard of without something truly catastrophic stopping you from going. It'd be disgraceful. The way Jesus sets this up would be like somebody offering you courtside tickets to, to game seven of the NBA finals. And sorry, I wish the Hawks were there, but just imagine that. And, and you say, yes, I'll be there. That sounds amazing. And then game day comes. And you say, you know, I, I got to watch the dog. I got stuff to do. I'm going to pass. That's, that's kind of the equivalent of what, what's being said here. These are flimsy excuses. They, they don't hold up. The, if you bought a field, you've already inspected it. And the field's not going anywhere. You can do that tomorrow. This is not a, you know, days long. This is a, an evening. You're probably not doing that stuff during the evening hours anyway. Same with the oxen. Being married won't preclude you from attending. These are, these are lame excuses. And listen, the, the point of the parable, it's not you know, that these people are loving their possessions or they're loving their family relationships more than the kingdom. That's not it, I don't think. Uh, it's that they're too attached to family. No, the reason they bail is they don't want to go. They don't want to go. Now, if we can back out of the parable and kind of the point that Jesus is making and see what he means, we, we can see the eternal bad here. And it is bad. The eternal problem. These, these Pharisees that Jesus is looking at and telling this story, they're representing Israel, and they've, they've received a double invitation to the Messianic banquet. First, through the law and the prophets and the writings. And they said, yes, we want to go to the kingdom feast. Maybe not at the time, but you know these Pharisees, they had said yes. We want to sit down with the Messiah. We want to be part of that. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. Yes, but then Christ, the servant king, the Messiah comes, the second invitation, and he says, here I am, feast. And he offers forgiveness of sin, and he offers peace with God 
through, the sacri- through his sacrifice, and he offers eternal life through his death and resurrection, and he offers an eternal feast provided for them through no merit of their own. And they said, Yeah, I don't want it. We don't want it. Because we don't want you. That's the tragedy here. The eternal tragedy with respect to these religious leaders. They they acted as if they wanted the kingdom, but they're making excuses to the king. Jesus' conclusion is he's looking at these men eyeball to eyeball around this table in this room. What does he say? Verse 24 is this tragic. For I tell you, none of those men, and they got it, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. His point is clear. If they keep making excuses, if they keep rejecting him and his message, they're going to miss out on God's banquet. That's, that's the deepest problem. That's the eternal bad. It's not just an issue about Sabbath law. It goes deeper even than their, their, hunger, uh, their hunger for honor and, and, and acclaim. It goes to this deepest problem as they, are, they have rejected the, the Lord. They'll suffer eternally for it. So Jesus has peeled back the layers of this problem, using these parables to expose how bad, how bad these, quote, good people truly are. And he doesn't do this because he hates them. We talked about this last week. He, he, he's not, it's, no, it's because he loves them. He's not being mean. He's not being rude. He's being merciful and he's being loving in doing this. He aches for them to respond. He, he wants them to enter the kingdom of heaven, to join in the feast. That's why he's come, to invite them, to call them, to urge them, beg them. But entrance is only for those, as we saw in our series, of the, the Beatitudes. It's only for those who are poor in spirit. It's only for those who are spiritually bankrupt and know they, they bring nothing to the bargaining table. Their only hope is the merits of another. And Jesus knows that these seemingly good, religious, quote, righteous men, they, are the, they, are, they, they have this damnable confidence in themselves. Are there, might there be someone today in that same boat? Maybe that, is that where somebody here is? who's trusting in religious performance, who's trusting in their relative morality and rule-keeping, is trusting in their reputation of being a good and honorable person rather than coming to Christ and saying, like the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I clean. Naked I come to you for dress. Uh, helpless I look to you for grace. Foul I too. I to your fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. As we come empty-handed, we say, I bring nothing. I need Christ. If you're here and you're still clinging to that stuff and, 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 and you're like those Pharisees around that table and you're, you're fuming even at this message maybe, I, I beg you, I urge you to, to, to respond today. The open t- invitation was genuinely open to them then. It's genuinely open to you now. Let go. Receive Christ. Rest in Him today. Trust in Him and His work on your behalf. But quickly, yeah, that's what preachers always say. Quickly, let's let's backtrack through this account and see the good here, the good solution, the to see grace. We could call this the grace, the bad and the ugly. It just didn't same have the same ring. But this eternal, so we're going to kind of work backwards. We walk through that progression of through the passage of this external bad, the problem, internal issue, and then the eternal problem. Now we're going to work backwards, and we're going to see the eternal, eternal good, the internal good, and then this external overflow of good. So the first, we'll, we'll see that together. So the eternal good. First thing, it's just God's throwing a party. <laughs> That's it. I mean, that's the, that's the big headline of the parable here at the end. He's throwing a lavish feast, this enormous banquet, and many are invited. You're invited. That, that, that's, that's great. That's eternally good. In this parable, Jesus is pointing to this party that God's going to throw one day, and it's going to be unbelievably lavish. All kinds of food, entree after entree, all kinds of uh, libations, maybe some Dr. Pepper, I'm hoping. Um, but this great banquet, more than, and a great banquet, it's more than just plenty of food and drinks. It is, 
you know, a good party, it fills your belly and it fills your soul. And we even know this experientially in our, in our time now. It's the, it's the fellowship you enjoy with the host and with the other guests. And this is, is, is this, Jesus tells the story and, and he's, he's pointing to this feast that's coming for us. God's banquet will bring incalculable, incredible, eternal joy. Joy, satisfaction, delight after delight, eternal good. God is planning a celebration at the end of the age when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom on earth. Revelation 19, this is how we're going to close our service today, reading this passage, and it will be eternally good. And we're invited. We're invited. Most of those, most of us here are among those who in this story have been compelled by God's grace to come. We're on our way now. We're going there. So, so, and then let's look at the parable though. So you see the, the eternal good of grace here in, in this parable. In contrast to those invited guests who are rich in themselves and are making all these excuses why they don't want to come, the, the way is open to some unlikely folks. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, the excuses, the rejections. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. Still there is room. And the master said to the servant, That's not acceptable. Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. This lavish feast prepared for by God. He's done it all. All the preparation. It will be enjoyed by guests. The banquet hall will be filled. No seat will be left empty. That's what the master's saying. And, and so the invitation, it goes out to the outcast of Israel. That's the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame of the city. You notice that. I think that's a reference to Israel. And then it goes even further to the, to the Gentiles. They're the ones outside of the city, in the highways and in the hedges. To us. That's how the gospels come to us. And these people are, notice the text says, compelled to come in. Because they can hardly believe that they've been invited. They're reticent to come in because they, they're needy. They have nothing to offer the host. They, they, their presence will do nothing to raise his status in that community. And so they have to be convinced. And the master's telling the servant, essentially, don't take no for an answer. I mean, this is the way the gospel is to be proclaimed, isn't it? I'm getting ahead to the, to the conclusion. All right. But this points, points us to the next layer of good, the next layer of grace we see here. And it's this internal good. That the ones who come are the ones that grace has met and has transformed. It's the ones who understand they're poor and they're needy and they're unfit and they're undeserving. It's the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind who, verse 14, who know they cannot repay. It's those who are humbled, who humble themselves, who, who know they bring nothing, uh, they bring nothing, they, and they desperately need the provision of another. They don't have what it takes. Those are the ones who are exalted. Listen, this is us. This is us. This, we are the poor. We're the blind. We're the crippled. We're the lame. We're, the, we're those that are on the outside of the city. We're the riffraff. We're the rejects that have been compelled to join God's banquet. That's the church. That's that's us. Romans 11, 11, it says it's a result of Israel's trespass that grace has come to us. That's not just true theologically. We're not just rejects and riffraff theologically. That 1 2 Corinthians 1, 26 and following, consider your calling, brothers. We're not smart. We're not powerful. We're not, we're not noble people. We're foolish, weak, low, despised, nothings, he says. Why? So that no one may boast before God. We were, we are spiritually poor. I mean, poor, poor. With nothing to offer God for our salvation. We, we were spiritually crippled, made powerless by sin. We were spiritually blind, unable to see the truth about Jesus on our own. We were spiritually lame, unable to come to God on our own. And yet we've been brought in. And we will celebrate God's feast at the end of the age. So it's this internal work of grace in our hearts that Jesus is pointing to through these stories. And, it, and that's what allows us to experience this eternal goodness that's coming. 
God, that grace provides. And then last, backing out even further, external good, the external good. And here's what I mean, and this is more of an implication in the text. Here's what I mean, though, by external good as we think back through this passage. How, how should the eternal promise of good that's coming of this banquet that we've received now through the internal work of sovereign grace in our lives, how should we then live? How should that affect how we talk? Our relationships, our attitudes, our, uh, what's important to us? Well, if we understand that the Lord is the one who compelled us, undeserving as we are, to join in the feast, it's going to show up in our lives. Now just, just rewind the tape of the passage here. That, that, just let your parents explain rewinding the tape and what that means, young people. So, uh, we, we won't be fighting over seats to prove how worthy we are of honor. No, no. We'll just be grateful to be at the table. We won't be using others for selfish gains and putting people around us to, to help us rise through the ranks because what? Our only boast is Christ. We won't be callous towards the suffering of others because we, we, we'll care because Christ is so cared for us. And certainly we who've been welcomed into this eternal feast because of grace, we will want others to join in the party as well. We'll be like the servants going out compelling anyone, everyone to come in. Church, this is my prayer as I've been thinking this week and praying for us. That may the heart of God, may the heart of Christ for the lost beat stronger and stronger in us, church. The more we understand, the more we understand we, we were the riffraff. We were the rejects. We were the nobodies that, that had to be compelled to come in by sheer grace alone. The more, the more we get that, the more compassion we will have for other lost sinners. The more indiscriminate we will be in evangelism. The more we'll go everywhere and find everyone and invite them to come. Do we share God's love for sinners? For sinful sinners? For rejects? Not because we're you know, reaching down from our pedestal to help those poor people, pitiful people down there, but because we know that we are rejects apart from the grace of God. Do we actively pursue relationships with lost sinners? I know I feel like this used to be more of a, a pastoral challenge of, you know, with so much of our work in life and our office, we're around believers all the time, but I feel like this is more and more common for many believers. Maybe some of you feel this as well. It's, we struggle to be around unbelievers. Our paths don't cross like they maybe used to. We have Christian schools and Christian sports teams and Christian homeschool groups and Christian motorcycle clubs and Christian book clubs and on, on and on. I'm not you know, saying well, those are all bad in themselves, but we have to get out. We have to interact. We have to be with the lost. And it's not, and I, listen, I want to be, I want to be careful I don't want what I say now to contradict everything I've been saying up to this point. It's not we need to keep, we need to evangelize because we have to keep God disappoint, from being disappointed in us for our lack of evangelism. That's not the message. He's not frowning on us because we're slow to speak of Christ. He, he, we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he, he receives us as sons and daughters. He has only love in his heart for us. Our motivation isn't guilt or some need to maintain favor before the Lord. That's not it. No, but as we better, again, as we better apprehend the eternal good we enjoy, despite of our badness and despite of our ugliness, our hearts should be moved with compassion. Our mouths should be open to, to speak. Our feet should be moving towards others. And so if I could get really practical in conclusion here in the couple minutes we have left, it just suggest some application that fits with the summer series. And I'm not saying this is by any means the only way to apply this, but I think it's, it, it fits with what we're doing here. And so maybe the exhortation to evangelize or you know, to live on mission, that seems a little vague or maybe it just seems intimidating and you get a little nervous just thinking about what this might actually mean in, our, in your life. So here's just a simple, very ordinary way that we can all work to better align our lives with Christ's heart and his mission. And this is, what if we used meals? For mission. What if we use meals, eating, drinking? I'm not talking about you know, staged 
church, you know, big planned events where we, you know, invite people to come on our campus and hear a gospel sermon, something like that. I mean, that, I'm not saying that would be bad, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about ordinary meals in homes, in restaurants, at parks, just a cup of coffee at a local coffee shop, an ice cream cone at Brewster's, or whatever, whatever it is, the version, that kind of social engagement is what I'm talking about. Our gratitude, this is what happens. It's not magical, it's not some mystical, but our gratitude for Christ's saving work, it intersects, when it intersects with shared meals with unbelievers, there, there are the, there's the provision for these powerful gospel moments and opportunities. That's what I'm talking about. This is what Jesus did. He didn't run projects. He didn't create programs. He didn't put on events. He ate meals much of his life. The, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. I'm not saying he didn't you know, do other things, but I'm just saying this was the normal thing. Listen, if you regularly share meals with others and you love Jesus and you talk about Jesus freely, then you will be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. Don't hear that. People are saved through the gospel message, and that's it. So it's not just having a meal as doing evangelism. But meals can create very natural opportunities to share, to share that message of the gospel in a context that resonates powerfully with, with what we're saying. So meals, they bring evangelism, you know, that mythical evangelism, they bring it into the ordinary. They can we, we too often think of it in, as kind of being something extraordinary. You've got to have a powerful speaker. You've got to have this big event. You've got to, you know, have this mission trip to go do this kind of thing. But most people live, live in the ordinary. And most people will be reached by ordinary people. Even, if, even those who do attend, a, you know, a, a special event at a church or some kind of evangelistic outreach event, most of the... For the most part, they're there because they've invited by someone who, a Christian who's befriended them. And so we, we all have to eat three meals a day, seven, day, seven, seven days a week. I don't know math anymore, but um, that's 21 opportunities for mission a week without adding anything else to your schedule. What if we use just one or two of those a week? Or just a month? That would probably be positive, positive momentum from, from many of us. A lunch break with a coworker, breakfast on the way to school with a classmate, dinner or dessert with a neighbor, inviting someone who lives alone to share a family meal with you. Uh, this is Francis Schaeffer wrote about this a long time ago, but he, he just said this, and I think it's practical, but don't start with a big program. Start personally and start in your home. Then he says, I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. <laughs> He's bolder than me, sorry. Do what I am going to suggest. Begin by opening your home. You don't need a big program. You don't have to convince your elder board. All you have to do is open your home and begin. Amen. I'm not, this is not preacher up here pounding pulpit on this one saying, you people, this is me. I mean, I'm thinking about my own life, my own table. Use, use ordinary family meals. You don't have to be, doesn't have to be gourmet. It doesn't have to be some big formal dinner and event. Most people will feel more comfortable folding into a family meal and all the craziness that's happening around the table than they would, you know, trying to figure out which fork to use and that kind of stuff and feel stiff. Um, maybe throw, throw a party. Invite Christians and non-Christians. That's, that's generally the best way to do these kind, those kinds of meals if it's not just a one-on-one -on -one thing. But Maybe don't watch sports. We have the Olympics coming up, and that would be a great opportunity. Super Bowl, those kinds of big events. Maybe to celebrate a holiday. Fourth of July is a little late for this, but um, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, all those, you know, think in those ways. Maybe a personal occasion, birthdays, anniversaries, you know, housewarming events, welcoming somebody to the neighborhood, students, you know, final exams are over, and, and celebrate those kinds of things. Again, it's not saying party's the answer. Party's Parties are just vehicles, part, but they create platforms for relationships and gospel conversations. That's what I'm talking about. It's just an application. A love for people and a love for Christ will open those doors, those meet. You don't have to give a, you know, a mini sermon in, in those contexts to make it mission. You just be aware of, listen to people, be very open about your faith and, and make, it, make it ordinary. And the last kind of just 
thing I would, my encouragement is just keep it going with some of them. I mean, some, some attempts will kind of fizzle, but if, if you can keep some regularity with a few people and build that relationship over time, keep those conversations going. Not, so it's not just about a moment of breaking out and taking the risk and trying this for this one big meal, but it's about the development of a relationship where Christ is talked about freely with that person over an extended period of time. Let's use our tables, church, as vehicles for inviting people to join in God's feast. That's just a way I think this text can be applied in a very bottom shelf kind of way. Well, Luke doesn't tell us how the Sabbath day dinner party ended. (laughs) But you can imagine that as Jesus walked out that door, his host didn't smile and say, I really hope you can come again soon. I don't think so. And in fact, you know, we've been looking at the last three meals that have been in homes have all been in the homes of Pharisees. You know that? But in Luke's gospel account, you will never read of Jesus being welcomed into the home of a Pharisee religious leader again. That's it. The next chapter starts with Luke saying that, quote, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Presumably this led to meals with them because the Pharisees, they watched Jesus going into these homes of these, you know, notorious sinners. And they, the text says, quote, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The next recorded meal is Luke 19, where Eric will lead us next Sunday with the wee little man Zacchaeus. Expect the song. Eric's got a solo ready. The Pharisees, they're still spying on Jesus. They're still, Luke says there, grumbling. And they're, and they're saying, he has gone into the guest gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner and then the summary statement I'm stealing all of your thunder Eric I'm I'm skipping all the hard parts and just going to the juicy stuff Uh, the summary statement of his mission at the end of the section is this is the son of man the son of man who we also said came eating and drinking the son of man came to seek and to save the lost We were found because Jesus sought us and saved us when we were lost. My prayer, church, is that we, knowing that grace, being overwhelmed by that gracious reality, we would go eating and drinking to proclaim our seeking and saving Christ to others who are lost. Let's pray. Lord, work in us greater apprehension of what is ours through no merit of our own solely the merits of Jesus Christ the eternal good that is ours in Jesus help us to apprehend it so that we would be grateful and help us to then turn around and compel others to come join in the feast Lord. work this in us for your name's sake and for the for the uh, progress of the gospel among the nations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.